0: Our text today is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. I mention this by way of preparation because we actually will not read our text until the very end of the sermon. Okay, so open your Bibles to Isaiah 9 and keep your finger there until the end of the sermon. This is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. So we've seen before, Advent comes from the Latin adventus, which means coming or arrival. They are the four Sundays prior to Christmas. It also marks the beginning of the Christian calendar. Each Sunday has a theme, hope, love, joy, and peace. Advent, I think, for the church, for the most part, has come to be seen as a time to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But it is also to be a time when the church engages in self-examination in expectation of Jesus' second coming. There are two Advents. One has happened, one has yet to happen. I think it's safe to say that most people, when if they know anything about Advent, they think in terms of Christmas, the first coming of Jesus, almost to the exclusion of the second coming. One writer suggested that during much of the 20th century, The second coming of Jesus was considered in the mainline churches to be an obsolete, if not downright embarrassing topic for preaching. But the reality is that we as the people of God live in Advent all the time, the people of God in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus. And now we are waiting for the return of our Lord and Savior. You may recall or not that last year, I did a series of sermons on Advent And the principle that I used to guide our study on Advent was that Advent begins in the dark, and that the church lives in Advent. Some of you may have rolled your eyes and thought, there he goes again. Someone who used to attend here uh, has said of me, Damon can turn any hymn into a dirge. Um, So arguing that Advent uh, begins in the dark might be seen as keeping in keeping with my personality or how people have perceived me. At least last year, that might've been the case. This year, 2020, to say or to argue that Advent begins in the dark. Yeah, yeah, that's not a real stretch for us this year. We find this throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah 45, 15, We read, truly you are a God who hides himself, O Savior, or God and Savior of Israel. Advent, in fact, does begin in darkness. It is this hiddenness that gives Advent its special character. The church's life in Advent is hidden in Christ until he returns, and he will return. This explains, by the way, why so much of what the church does appears to be failure, rather than success just as his life appeared to end in failure we live in advent we live between the two advents jesus has come and jesus will come we don't know the hour the day but we know that he will come back but living in between the two advents creates a sort of tension particularly because we don't know when jesus is coming back It's almost unbearable at some times, not knowing, not knowing when he will return. But if you understand, if you appreciate this tension of living between the two advents, then you will understand what it means to be a child of God, to be a Christian. In Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is in head-on collision with the powers of darkness. And this is where we, as God's people, are to take our stand. That's why it hurts. That's why the church oftentimes takes such a beating. At least it has in other places and at other times. It is at the church, in the church, where the line is precisely drawn between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. So it may be that it seems that we stand in a dark place but we are to stand, we are to watch. One of the things that we should recognize, particularly now in 2020, is that human progress is a deception. This is material from last year, so it's a bit dated, but I think we have been blinded by what the progress, the technological progress that we have made And failed to recognize that people are still in a fallen state. But now in 2020, just read the news, turn on the TV. And you'll see that we have not progressed as much as, in fact, we think we have. And that's why Advent is so out of sync with human thinking. Not if we say Advent's about Christmas, because everybody loves Christmas. But when you talk about the tension of living between the coming of Jesus and his return, and being at the front line of the struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, um, yeah, that's something we'd rather not talk about. As one writer put it, Advent encroaches upon us in an uncomfortable way, making us feel somewhat out of sorts with its stubborn resistance to anything remotely resembling the season of shopping and decorating and wrapping and partying. Except this year, the year of the plague, these things haven't been happening, have they? The partying, the shopping. We need to remember that as a people of God, we live in Advent all the time. And for us as God's people in 2020, we live between the two Advents. It's called the time between because the people of God live in the time between when Jesus first came into the world incognito, you might even say, born in a stable, laid in a manger, revealed only to shepherds who in Jewish custom were not considered reliable. They could not give testimony in court. That was the first, this incognito coming. And the second coming, he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. We live in the already, Jesus has already come, but the not yet, he has not yet returned. And it is in Advent that we see this tension, yes and no, already, not yet. The Apostle John established one of the foundational truths in his first epistle, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. And in the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. But if that's the case, then why is there so much darkness in the world? This may be, in fact, the question of Advent. Why does it begin in the darkness? Where is God? And when will Jesus return? Peter wrote in his second epistle, first of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. I'm not sure that we need scoffers to ask this question. Where is this coming he promised? It's been almost 2000 years. When will he return? I do think, by the way, this is why people tend to focus more on Christmas than the second coming. In part, I think we are fearful of what Isaiah wrote, that it may be true that God is a God who hides himself. Advent begins in darkness, and the church lives in Advent. And this is how we are to do this. Is there an example to help us to know how to live before the second coming? Well, there is a character who lived before the first coming, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who interestingly enough, if you're a historian, is mentioned more often in non-biblical sources than Jesus is. If you look at secular sources of the first century, they mention John the Baptist more than they mentioned Jesus of Nazareth. We know from Luke chapter one, that John was a child of an elderly couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. We know that he was at least six months older than Jesus because we are told that Elizabeth was six months. It is her sixth month, Gabriel tells Mary, when he visited Mary. What was the world like to which John was born? What were the circumstances in that first advent? A brief timeline, 722 BC, Israel, the 10 Northern tribes are taken into captivity from which they do not return. In 582, Judah, the two Southern tribes are taken into captivity, Babylonian captivity. In 538, Cyrus allows the Jews to return to Judah. And in the year 400 B.C., the book of Malachi is written. And then we have four centuries, 400 years, that have come to be known as the 400 silent years. That is to say, God was silent. There were no prophets. There was no word from the Lord. Politically, it was a dark time. After the return from the exile, which... Time of great rejoicing. The Jews were still under foreign power. They were under the Persians, and then under the Greeks, Alexander the Great, then under the Ptolemies and Seleucids. There is a brief time of independence, about a century, under the Maccabeans, and then the Romans come in. It was not a good time politically. They are occupied by foreign powers. Religiously, however, some people might have argued it wasn't a dark time. There's no idolatry. I think Israel finally learned its lesson about idols. The synagogue emerges during this time. Um, It becomes uh, a place where people can come together to worship because the temple is no more back in Jerusalem. It's also during this time that people begin to read the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, in the synagogue. And this is really important because prior to this, if you read through the Old Testament, you will find that there there are long periods of time where no one knew where the law of God was. And then somebody finds it in the temple and then they read it and then people freak out like this is what God has said. Well, now every Sabbath, the Torah is read in the synagogue. It is during this time that Jewish worship as it is today began the singing of Psalms, and a, there's prayer, there's instruction, the reading of scripture, you remember the story of Jesus in Nazareth, after he had read from Isaiah, they want him to say something. The Same with Paul, when he goes to a synagogue, they read and then they ask him if he wants to say something about it. The Sanhedrin emerges, the Old Testament is translated into Greek, which is the lingua franca of that time. The synagogue, By the way, it comes from a Greek word, meaning uh, gathering, assembly. Two of the great rabbis in the Jewish tradition lived during this time. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they emerged during this time. One could argue that on the one hand, it seemed like a very dark time politically. And on the other hand, it was not a dark time religiously. But the reality is, it wasn't a great time. God was silent. And it seemed as though God's people were going their own way and doing their own thing. And we see this because when Jesus comes into the world, they don't recognize him. And the religious leaders want nothing to do with him. During these 400 years, the question is where is God? There are at least two passages that are mentioned by the gospel writers. Interestingly enough, all four of them quote from Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And, And what is this word? What is this man who comes, a voice crying in the wilderness? It's the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But we should also consider the last words of the Old Testament, the closing words, if you wish, before the silent centuries. In the book of Malachi, Malachi calls on the people who have returned from the Babylonian captivity, And he puts to them three questions. Is it vain to serve the Lord? Are we just wasting our time serving and worshiping God? Is there no difference between the wicked and the righteous? Because some wicked people seem to have an easy life and some righteous people don't. And thirdly, are there no guides for righteousness? If I want to be a righteous person, is there a guide? Well, you know what? The Jews would have four centuries 400 years to consider these questions. And after 400 years, the word of the Lord would be heard again. So what was John's story? Let me read to you from Mark chapter 1. This is how Mark opens his book. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Three things for us to consider about this man who is to be a model for us. He was there before the first appearing of Jesus, the first advent. Now we are waiting for the second advent, the second coming of Christ. Here is our model. And what do we see about him? Well, first of all, his person. When you think about it, um, doesn't it seem strange that Mark gives us these details? He doesn't always give us details, but he tells us about this man who wears camel's hair, uh, clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around around his waist, and he eats locusts and wild honey. Why are we given this description of John? I think we come away with a picture of a rather strange individual. One writer put it this way, after 2,000 years he still stands there, irreducibly strange, gaunt and ruly, lonely and refractory, utterly out of sync with his age or our age or any age. Even Elijah is positively lovable and cuddly in comparison. John's character, however, was never the central focus, though his person is remarkable by any standard. It is not his person that marks him out. It is his location. We'll come back to that in a few moments. One aspect of his character does come out. Let's make it two. The first was his fearlessness, his utter fearlessness. And it went hand in hand with his single-mindedness. John feared no man, not even Herod the king. Not even Herod's wife, who, in the end, arranged to have his head cut off. This man, this firebrand, this person was passionate about his calling. He knew what he had been called to do. And he was utterly submissive. I think for us it's kind of difficult because this man is so bombastic for, them to, for him to then say, listen, listen. There's someone coming after me. That's what I'm all about. It's not about me. Someone's coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie or to tie his sandals. He was utterly submissive, but he was fearless. I think we have a hard problem. We have a hard time with that. We like the fearlessness, but the submissiveness, not so much. He was fearless. He was submissive to be the witness to point away from himself to Jesus Christ. This was John's destiny. And he preached a gospel of repentance. I should never forget this. John is a model for us all because of his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. For many people today, to say that you repent is to say, I'm sorry. And certainly there is, there is that. But it means more than that. If we want to know what repentance is, we need to go back to the Isaiah 40 passage. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. This is John's message. And what it is, is a radical reordering of reality. It isn't just saying, my bad, I'm, I'm sorry, I blew it. It is, in fact, changing things. Mountains come down, valleys come up. It is a changing of the way that we think and we act. Repentance is not for the weak. I, I suspect that we may think that. That it is sort of the, I don't know, the milk toast kind of person who's like, yeah, I'm sorry, my bad, I repent when in fact repentance is for the strong. Those who are insecure are either unable to repent out of fear, or they're always saying, I'm sorry, but there isn't true repentance. The message of Advent means taking a good hard look at who we are, our faults, not someone else's, but our very own. Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And now the picture becomes clear. The problem is sin, and sin not in your heart, but in my heart, in every person's heart. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The message of Advent, the first Advent and the second Advent, is repent. The story is told of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who was a Russian dissident, spent time in the the Gulag Archipelago, um, and he was finally released. And then, at a certain point, his exile was lifted and he was able to go back to Russia. And he greeted all the people that he met as he was traveling in Russia, including the bureaucrats who had tyrannized their fellow citizens during the Soviet Union's reign. Some people were unhappy with him. You shouldn't talk to these people. You shouldn't greet these people. These are evil people. Don't you know what they did? Well, certainly he knew what they did. He'd been in the gulag. And he responded that the line between good and evil is never between us and them. It goes down the middle of each one of us. Because each of us have the capacity for good and evil. God's people of the Old Testament failed to recognize the evil in their own midst. They saw themselves as the people of the promise. They didn't recognize that they were the people of the problem. And John says, repent. And you know what? A lot of people did. A lot of people did repent, and I think part of it was the joy of knowing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After 400 years of silence, the kingdom of God is at hand. His person, his message, what about his location? I mentioned location earlier. Um, I don't mean geographical, that he was in the Jordan River baptizing people, okay, that he was in the wilderness. To locate John, we have to go back to the Old Testament, and in fact, go back to the last chapter of the Old Testament. It is worth noting that the way our Bible is arranged, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, it's not the case in the Jewish arrangement of the books. So in a sense, they sort of ignore that 400 years in which, well, it's not 400 years for them because they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But for those of us who see Jesus as the Son of God who came to save us from our sins, Malachi ends the old and Matthew begins the new. This is what is found in the last chapter of Malachi. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah, before the, that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Two Old Testament figures are mentioned, Moses who gives the law and Elijah the prophet. John the Baptist is the new Elijah. Elijah. And as one writer put it, John stands at the very precipice of the collision of two forces at the juncture where the world's resistance to God meets the irresistible force of the one who is coming. And I would argue that as God's people, that hasn't changed. That is where we are to be on the front line between the battle or in the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. yeah, but we'd rather talk about Christmas. We'd rather have presents and do things like that than to recognize the tension, the utter tension of living before the second advent. So what is advent? Here in closing, I'll give you three things to think about. First of all, advent is a time for considering divine silence. I would suggest that this may sound counterintuitive. You know, there is something more frightening than judgment, something much more frightening than divine judgment. You know what it is? Silence. Silence. These are numbers from several years ago. Eleven Christians are killed every day for their faith, simply because they are followers of Jesus. 245 million Christians face extreme persecution. These are only the ones that we know about. As one person put it, the unprecedented persecution facing Christians around the world in 2019, that was last year, is the greatest, best kept secret with the shameful silence of the West, which turns a blind eye as if persecution does not exist. Our brothers and sisters, who are waiting for the return of Jesus as we are, are being killed for their faith. And the world does nothing. But that's not the issue, is it? What is God doing about it? Where is God? When will the Lord Jesus return? Advent begins in darkness. As Isaiah asks in Isaiah 64, after all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? We have the story of Habakkuk, which we studied early on during this pandemic. Habakkuk asked God, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong?" Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the laws paralyze and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Why are you silent, Isaiah asked, while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? By the way, in Habakkuk's case, God wasn't silent. He, in fact, did answer Habakkuk. And Habakkuk wasn't thrilled initially at what God had to say. I think we may fail to appreciate God's silence because we're too busy listening to many other things. We fail to recognize the silence. Emily Dickinson, in her poem, I Know That He Exists, wrote these words. I know that he exists, somewhere, in silence. He has hid his rare life from our gross eyes. W.H. Auden wrote in a Christmas oratorio, he wrote this during World War II, before it was clear who would win the war. We are afraid of pain but more afraid of silence. For no nightmare of hostile objects could be as dreadful as this void. This is the abomination. This is the wrath of God. God's silence. To Auden, the silence of God was the wrath of God. The time between Malachi and John the Baptist was 400 years. It's come to be known as the 400 silent years. It's sort of similar to what Israel experienced in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for more than four centuries. And both periods were marked by divine silence. Advent begins in darkness. Apparently, it also begins with silence. I found this view of Advent to be quite difficult because it seems to call into question the character of God. One might even get a sense that God is absent. We don't want to do that. But if we were to be honest, there are times when that's precisely how we feel. We live in between the two advents. And it hasn't been 400 years. It's almost five times 400 years since the first advent. And in the darkness and the cruelty of humanity, it may seem that God is silent. But the second thing about Advent is, it is a reminder that God keeps his promises. Yes, there were 400 silent years, but God did send his son into the world. He did send a redeemer. One Old Testament scholar has said that the exile was a theological emergency. You're like, Why? Because they were in exile? No. It wasn't because they were living in a pagan society. It was because it seemed that God wasn't keeping his promises. But on this Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Advent, we are reminded God keeps his promises. He did send his son into the world. And we know that one day the Lord Jesus will return. The third thing about Advent, it is a time for anticipating the light. We may be in the darkness, but we know one day the light will come. It is in the darkness that the light appears to come. The story begins in Luke chapter 1. You have this this couple. I don't say they were elderly because uh, Zacharias is serving in the temple. He could only do that to age 50, but he and his wife Elizabeth uh, don't have any children. And... During this period of time, these 400 silent years, a tradition arose that someone who did not have children uh, was not blessed by God. In fact, God was quite angry with them and could, in fact, be the basis for excommunication, being kicked out of the people of God. But Luke tells us that they are, in fact, righteous people. You have silence, you have darkness, and from a most unexpected place, you have a couple who have no children who are promised a son, and that son is John the Baptist. Zachariah could hardly believe it, and so Gabriel, who had appeared to him, said, "Okay you're not going to be able to speak until you know, until the child is born and so Zachariah couldn't speak, but on the eighth day, when John was circumcised and the child is to be named, he wrote his name is to be John. And then his mouth was opened, and he said, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Advent begins in darkness, but it leads us to the light. And now we come to our text, here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow, or living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Yes, there is darkness, but it is out of the darkness that light comes. Jesus has come. Jesus will come. And we live in between those two periods. Advent begins in darkness. But one day the light comes. Let's pray together. Father, as it tends to be our nature, we sort of pick and choose the things that we like. We'd rather talk about Christmas when we think of Advent, and, and not so much the return of the Lord Jesus. Though I suspect this time, the time of the pandemic, this plague, the second coming has become somewhat more attractive. This time of darkness, of plague is uncomfortable, but the reality is, I think we should have been uncomfortable all along as we are in a struggle, in a fight, the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness. And like John, we are to be fearless, but also submissive. During this time of pandemic, in many ways, we have stumbled. Seen lost, looking to scientists to tell us what to do, looking to our government, and we've lost any sense of fearlessness, any sense that you are in control. We ask that out of the darkness of this time, your light would shine on us and we would reflect it to those around us. That the Lord Jesus has come. He has brought light and life to us. And one day he will return. There is much that is mysterious about the incarnation. How could the infinite personal God come as a baby? There is much that is mysterious about the second coming as well. But by your grace, may we believe and look forward in anticipation to the return of your son. But in the meantime, we're in the front lines We're in the midst of a struggle, and in our own hearts, there's a tension, wondering why you allow certain things to happen. Open our eyes, give us wisdom. Show us your love as you have by sending your son. May we embrace that and show it in our lives to those around us. During this Christmas season, may we see the truth for what it is. And may we rejoice in your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.